Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Abhishek. We are a cross-cultural couple doing life in India, exploring the lesser-known mysteries of Indian culture, interviewing fascinating figures who have chartered new territories, and sharing life as we raise our multicultural family amongst the complexities of modern Indian life. wanted to give an update on the flooding situation that happened in our city. Um, so in, within 48 hours of rain, entire city was uh, affected, a lot of mayhem and chaos everywhere. Yes. And um, basically, most of the streets, there are hundreds of streets in our town of whatever, 3 million people, uh, most of the streets were submerged and up to waist to chest deep water. So basically, all, many of the cars were in the parking lot were completely ruined as they were submerged in the water. And many streets, there, were no, there was no traffic anymore and people couldn't go get out of the house. No rickshaws, no autos. Basically, you, the only way to go from one place to another was to walk wade in the water so this was the what 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 happened and this lasted in our neighborhood for about a week and this meant that we did not get out of the house for like 48 hours i didn't leave for four days (laughs) yeah like two or three days we were totally stuck in the water because we didn't want to go in the waste or chest deep water and we didn't know what was in there and of course the drainage and the sewage system is not at par here at, for the for the urban standards, I'm sure that all of that was undone. Manhole was open, and many of the sewage was in the water. Uh, we even saw dead cats and dead rats, dead rats, and oh, it's just stinking and disgusting, pretty much. But this is uh, what happens when you have uh, officials not doing their job properly. Officials not. They just get the job and that's it. They do the bare minimum to keep the pen pushers or whatever you want to call them. They, they do not strategize. They do not invest. Most of the money is just eaten up by the people who are working in these, in, in these uh, departments. And this is what causes, um, because 48 hours of rain should not have affected the city to, to this extent. You know, like recently they were getting ready in Japan to have uh, have a hurricane. And so they had like barricaded their people's homes had been barricaded and, and different, different precautionary measures had to be taken to withstand that hurricane. So that makes sense that you, your city can be, you know, affected to that extent where you have waist deep, chest deep water and it can come into your home. But here, there was no hurricane. There was no actual, like, river flooding or the sea coming into the city. It was just rainwater, rains, you know, heavy rains. And that should not cause this the flooding to this extent. So basically, it is corruption and inability of officials to do their job properly throughout the year that causes these type of things to happen. So we were stuck in the house for I was stuck for like four days and Abhishek was actually just coming back from a trip in the middle of this chaos posted some on our Instagram when it was happening he had to actually take a cycle rickshaw with his luggage 
So by the airport where he came in, it wasn't too bad. What, like knee-deep water or something. Even people could actually get in and out and cars could go through it. But as you got into our area, it got deeper and deeper and deeper. And so a lot of the taxis were refusing to go. They said, we're not even going to go to your area. One of my good friends with good, you know, good heart came to pick me up from the airport and take me as close as he could to our apartment. And he dropped me about half a kilometer, which is like, 0.3 miles away from the apartment and basically a rickshaw guy pulled me all the way here and he charged me four or five times the amount of money that one would charge if the land was dry and he basically pulled me with my backpack on the seat uh these are cycle rickshaws mind you that he wasn't riding the rickshaw because there was you know he couldn't even ride it because there was so much water on the ground so he pulls me and he brings me all the way to the dry parking lot of the apartment that's how i came back uh, in this mayhem and i was in the part of southeast asia which was amazing and it was dry and the rains did not cause this kind of damage and when i came back here it was it was a downer to to come back to this type of situation where in you know like basic uh, amenities were being affected we didn't have electricity for 18 hours i think at one point and our battery you know we have battery uh, to back up our power um, and that wasn't working we were uh, really went into the crisis mode because of this 48 hour heavy rain and then that caused the flooding yeah so as soon as he came back, I was really happy because I'd been kind of stuck in the house for two days with the kids with limited power. And I was I had food, but I was starting to kind of get nervous because I didn't really have any way to get out. And neighbors and stuff, of course, were a huge help. And I was trying to help others. You know, oh, do you have milk? Yes. Do you have sugar? Yes. Do you have tea? Yes. Do you have tomatoes? Yeah. You know, we're all sharing with each other. So that was a help. And uh, But for some people that were really stuck, I mean, they live in a private house and they literally couldn't get out at all. So fortunately, we live in an apartment complex, which we have, about, I don't know, at least, you know, 50 to 100 other families that live in this complex. So we can all kind of help each other. But man, it was rough. These are kind of the some of the things that make you feel, you know, why do I live here? But these are the, the rough days, the rough times. So how we got out. We basically eventually completely lost power and it wasn't going to come back and nobody was going to come help and fix it. So we had to leave our house and we basically picked up our two kids with a backpack and started going across the water. And at one point, you know, it was almost waist deep. We had to wade through. So it was pretty terrible and pretty disgusting, but uh, we packed a backpack and waded across to (laughs) another place so we could stay So this was a pretty difficult situation, and honestly, we're some of the privileged people. We have plenty of food, and we have, you know, people to help us, but there are some people that were really in a huge amount of danger. Uh, There's a lot of electrical problems that happen when this stuff goes wrong, and just, I mean, I think we had, I don't know how many people died, around 30 people in our city died because of the floods and it's not necessarily drowning it's a lot of these like weird power things or people falling into ditches that they didn't know were there because they're completely submerged in water and so it's just tough it's just terrible so um, we're glad to be out of it and um, now let's get into our episode with Christian and talk about India's sanitation we thought this would be a great (laughs) add-on to this topic 
Hey, Jessica here, and I am really thrilled to have longtime friend of Abhishek and I with us to discuss India's Waste Management Challenge. Christian is a PhD candidate at University of California, Berkeley, a scientist, an intellectual, a voice for communities in India that may be a bit marginalized, that may not have access to all the technological advancements that we take for granted in the West for some of the basic community needs. He's up on all the new technologies in waste management, in water purification, and using water as a priceless resource and what that means in our world today, and so much more, which we're going to get into. So he is here with us. I'm super excited. He, You've been friends with us for like, I don't know how long, like 20 years? Has it been 20 years? I don't know. I just randomly <laughs> how said How old that. are we? I don't know. <laughs> so we've been friends for a long time and our paths have crossed in many different ways. You were the best man in our wedding and we go back a long time. But it's really cool that I'm really grateful that our paths are still crossing even though we've gone in so many different directions in life and we still have some things in common. The timing is really interesting for this interview because we just went through a huge challenge where we live with flooding, with complete failure of our local drainage and sewage systems and people are just really infuriated. So you're here with us in our town and you've seen how bad things are. And so I just want to like get into that with you a little bit about your research, what do you think some of the issues are? What are some of the resolutions? What are some the technologies and advancements that are taking place? So can you tell just a little bit about how you got into this and why you're interested specifically in India's water and waste management and the other things that you're focused on? Sure. I was actually living in Varanasi and I had done my master's there at the Banaras Hindu University focused on the Ganges River. One of the main pollutants of the Ganges River at Varanasi is unsafely treated sewage because all of the sewage would drain into the Ganges River and it's one of the biggest problems there still till today. When I started my PhD, I focused a lot on drinking water, but then I started to kind of go back to those roots and think again, okay, our drinking water is polluted um, in different cities of South Asia, and sanitation is a huge problem with that. And so I got more and more interested in that as I went through my PhD and gone through field work. So I started to connect with different organizations that were focused on sanitation and looking at why has this been such a long-standing problem. And to be honest, it's a problem all over the world. Even in so-called Western and developed countries, you'd see places in New York City where they combine, it's called combined sewage overflow, where when, when there are storms, uh, large storms like Hurricane Sandy in New York City, mm-hmm. then you'd have the com- combination of stormwater and sewage, and that just overflows into the streets um, and into the ocean. So you have this problem, but India then had adopted during the turn of the century and then in the 90s through different uh, schemes, the same types of sewage systems. And sometimes those same technologies are less effective in cities in India with things like intermittent water supply. So if you put in all those sewage pipes, 
there is not enough water to push the sewage to treatment plants. And so treatment plants are under capacity, meaning that they don't treat all the sewage that is needed. But then when the rains come and then they overwhelm the sewage systems and the treatment systems, and then you have the overflow problems. So there are various reasons for flooding. We are now thinking more ecologically Mm. uh, in places like New York City and across India of, okay, how do we prevent flooding? We used to think we have to get the water out of the city as soon as possible, but then all this rapid water collecting and accumulating also causes flooding. So can we get water to soak into the ground? And that's what we're trying to get other cities to do because it's all covered with concrete or stone. And so combining these kind of more ecological solutions uh, with treatment solutions that are also a little bit more sustainable. So as we know, there's a lot of intermittent power supply in India. And so Treatment systems that are high energy, high energy intense, cost a lot of money for operation and maintenance. And sometimes there are a lot of blackouts in different cities. So if you don't have electricity or you can't pay for the electricity, then how can you keep a treatment plant running? And they also use up a lot of water. So I work with different organizations that try to minimize the amount of energy it takes and minimize the amount of water it takes to treat, let's say, toilet water or gray water, which is all the other water usually comes out of a household. You focus specifically on India globally. I focus primarily on urban India, so small towns and large cities and sanitation. So sanitation is very broad, mm-hmm. So, but I focus mainly on what would be considered liquid waste. Mm. Sounds lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what are some of the challenges that India has specifically? You mentioned a few, mm-hmm. like the um, intermittent power, not constant access to water supply. Is deforestation something that's a concern? Is rapid urbanization a concern? What are some of the other unique challenges that India faces? I focus primarily on what would be considered sanitation planning. So how cities plan for sanitation, if at all. And so a lot of the issue is this technological issue of wanting the big system, but maybe a smaller system or more decentralized system would be more appropriate and more manageable. And governments, either state, city, central governments, are willing to pay for large systems, And it's harder for them to consider these smaller systems that could be put in place. And not only that, it's what we what I say is a capex versus opex problem. And this has been, you know, a decades old problem. Governments are willing to pay for the capital expenses to install all these systems, but it's not fully thought through, planned or considered all the operation and maintenance of the system. Maintenance is always an issue. (laughs) So this is for most infrastructure around the world, but particularly in India, this happens over and over again. So a major problem in the sanitation sector is this capex, opex gap. Um, Even with ecological systems, more where operation and maintenance is very low cost, low skill, low energy intensive, and low water intensive, they still require a minimum amount of maintenance. And so this is something that we need to consider a lot 
Um, and so my focus in research, part of my focus in research is what is called capacity building. Capacity building has a lot of definitions, but one of them is support for local institutions and local engineers and planners to maintain systems. We find that most cities need hand-holding. A lot of times technology is dumped in a city and just the city is left not even making the decision yeah. <laughs> to take that technology and then it's not maintained. Cities don't know how to make those technological decisions because they might have one junior engineer and that junior engineer never learned about certain technologies. And so that's part of what I'm seeing is I sit in workshops with engineers and planners and I interview different government officials and say, what is the decision-making process for sanitation? We have this like Swachh and now we're going into a new phase of sanitation across India. They've built all of the toilets, but many of the toilets, the liquid and the solid waste that come from the toilets that have all been built have no place to go. Mm. So we've accumulated all of this and it's become very concentrated and now it could leak into you know drinking water or different things like that or it gets dumped somewhere or the pipes go nowhere or into surface water bodies and so now we are going into another phase in India across India of now we have to treat this fecal sludge or wastewater and now we have to consider what can both urban and rural areas handle so that's the question now. So I'm looking at, okay, what are the policy recommendations that I could make for the decision makers in terms of what technologies can work, but more, what is the proper decision making process? Do you feel like a lot of the recommendations are taken or, I mean, is it, does the Swachh Bharat campaign really focused on this? I know there's been a ton of focus on, you know, getting toilets installed and all of that, but then there's the maintenance issue, there's all these other issues. So do you feel like the difference is really being made? Or I mean, what do you feel? Toilets are being built, <laughs> have been built. Not necessarily all have been used. Um, some need water. In terms of recommendations, the more and more deeply I get into understanding how decisions are made, the more I understand the political challenges so as governments shift from the center down to the state down to the cities then you shift all the people that have been involved in the planning so an election comes up and then maybe the party changes then a whole administration line of administration may change and then you have a new set of people that may have agreed to one contract for toilets and treatment now these new administrators don't know anything about that contract or don't want that contract anymore. Mm. And so you may have been pushing for maybe more ecologically friendly and more sustainable systems, but now you have a whole new cater of people to talk to in the administration to convince. Mm. And so this has happened in various cities. And so you just have to consider it's not just a technological problem. It's not just an engineering problem. Different organizations have been working, okay, maybe we can work from the bottom up. And this is part of my research. Is it bottom up, top down, middle out? So like bottom up is, do you work with the individual city and just help them as much as possible and build something with them? Or do you work from the top down, work with a state, a central center of state and say, okay, if we work with a state and they really agree, then they can like spread this 
helpful technology and system and decision-making process throughout many different cities? Or do you work from kind of the middle out, like work with both of them at the same time? So how do we help cities make these decisions? And then, of course, there's always the funding problem. Like what you said about it not just being a technological problem, there are political problems, there are social issues or ceilings or prejudices or that are stopping a lot of these things from coming forth. I was listening to a podcast called The Seen and the Unseen by Amit Verma. He talks about uh, Swachh Bharat and how in many of the villages, the whole ghar ghar toilet ho jao, whatever, jo bhi tha, stopping open defecation and having toilets available to each and every person. He was talking about how there are actually a lot of social and caste-driven restraints, especially because you're dealing with something so sensitive as human waste, which we all know. I mean, you've one thing I did not mention about about Chris is that He's been a student of Indian culture. Aap Hindi bhi bolte hain, bahut achhi Hindi bolte hain. Aap bahut saalon se India mein the, aur aap Bharat ke baare mein bahut kuch jante hain. Aise nahi ki aap bahar se aaye, aap yahan research kar rahe hain aur wapas jaake sab cheez bhul jayenge. You know, you really care about India. You're a person that really is very connected. You have a lot of friends here. You have a lot of relationships rooted here. I see that you are really invested in getting underneath some of these issues. Do you see that there are a lot of other social issues or any issues of inequality that are hindering the progress of proper sewage management and water resource management? So totally. Um, as you said with the toilets, culturally some people don't want to use the toilet depending on where it is. Some people have a problem with it have, having a toilet inside the house or just having in a confined, dirty space to go to the toilet. And they'd rather a cleaner, open space, which they've been using. And a lot of people didn't consider those things. And you look at the various studies and a lot of villages and towns do not use the toilets that were built. Other aspects is you can look at things like history. In terms of British history, a lot of the water and drainage history that happened in the turn of the century across India in the larger cities were very much Eurocentric and kind of separating because it, a lot of it happened during the revolt. So there was a sanitation movement. This is a paper that's going to come out that I'm going to write. All right. So there's a sanitation, for it. <laughs> sanitation movement from the West that was kind of related to environment, not only germ theory, but environment. Oh, the environment may cause sickness. And they found that with the European armies. It was like, actually, our con the condition of our hospitals are unsanitary and actually may cause more deaths. And so then this then went into India with the British army and they saw the same things and they were like, we need to create more open spaces, drainage, but for the Europeans, right? The Europeans mm -hmm. in India. Not for everyone. Yeah. But this was also all tied in with the revolt right. and feeling unsafe and unsecure. So this is all this interweaving of politics, um, of inequality and that's then sanitation water and sanitation separated 
the Europeans from uh, Indians. And so Europeans had these nice cantonments made or row houses with the nice drainages and then they could have air flowing through and their water drained uh, nicely while they left the other parts um, more crowded without proper sanitation. And these, 150 years later, persist. So then the British leave but then are replaced by the wealthier um, uh, communities. And so these inequalities persist throughout. Um, and often when we put in large infrastructure like for water and sewage, most of the benefit goes to the middle and upper class. It's kind of a subsidy for them. And so how do we then help the marginalized and the lower income groups? And that's what these type of more decentralized technologies try to do, mm. try to get technology more dispersed that could treat the sewage. Another social and cultural issue in general is that liquid waste is often invisible. <laughs> like, liquid waste often gets hidden, mm. or you get used to it. Yeah. And then putting in a treatment system for sanitation is often invisible. Mm. So solid waste, sometimes you can see the difference. Uh, I think roads gets cleaned up. But when you put in a fecal sludge or a sewage treatment plant, that the tr plant is somewhere... And then somehow you put the pipes that are invisible. And then so sometimes people don't see the difference. Or all you see are the roads getting torn yeah. up around you. And you see the immediate inconvenience of my roads are torn up. The traffic is stopped up because of these pipes. And it's, it's short term versus long term. Yeah. That could, and that's also there. So it's kind of it's less it's more invisible than, let's say, getting a water pipe into your piped into your home. Um, you already are shunting all the wastewater out and you don't know where it goes. It gets dumped, you know, on land or farmland uh, a little bit farther away or into an open drain. And so you still don't see it. So when a proper system is put in, um, then you don't see the effects as well. And then even if you have a more ecologically friendly one, um, then it's a little bit even more invisible because they're smaller systems. And so this is one reason why cities sometimes and states sometimes don't want it because then you don't have this big piece of technology that you put in as a politician or as an administrator and then you don't have that legacy um, for your party. Yeah, or a toilet where everyone can see there's a toilet in my village, there's a toilet in my slum. It's a very visible check in the box which you can say, we installed this, we installed that. And whether people actually use it or not, you've done your job as a, you know, mm -hmm. checking the box Yeah, the voters. Mm. So a lot of the infrastructure for sanitation is invisible. Mm. And so sometimes... Very challenging. Yeah. Residents or politicians or administrators, it's not top priority. And, you know, water is a very high priority. And so yeah. water and sanitation uh, funding sometimes competes. Mm -hmm. And so at the national level, they've pushed a lot for sanitation in terms of the toilet building in the past few years. Now the budget is swinging back. And so we're yet to see how the budget for sanitation will turn out in the coming years. Can you talk a little bit about some of the innovative things that companies or municipalities or different cities are doing. This is such a huge problem. And so it might be good to kind of think about and, and hear some of the, the innovations or things that are happening in this field. 
So there's no one magic technology and just combining different technologies might be great for cities depending on their size and density. One of the biggest costs is our sewage pipes. And once they're in, it's also expensive to extend it when the population grows. So you can have different alternatives. Maybe you have the pipes and you have a sewage treatment plant or a few of them, but then maybe in the peripheries or in dense um, you know, slum areas, you can put in different technologies that are easier to maintain. You can put them underground. So there are, I work with an organization called CDD and they're able to put systems underground that are gravity fed. And it's basically, you know, a lot of houses have septic tanks. And so what they do is it's kind of a glorified septic tank. Septic tanks do some level of treatment, but if you design a septic tank or a tank in a certain way, it could do a lot more to treat the sewage. And so that's something that could be easily done. You put a, either under a sidewalk or under uh, land that you could put a garden on top, which they often do. And then other simple things are what drying beds. So these aren't very exciting technologies. You just put the shit into a drying bed and leave it. <laughs> People are not going to like this. <laughs> um, so a combination of these. Some Another idea is if you already have a sewage treatment plant is to add a little bit more treatment. So some houses are not connected to a sewage pipe, uh, but they do have septic tanks. So you collect the septage from, through trucks. And then this concentration of septage, a, a sewage treatment plant can't handle. But if you add augment it and do co-treatment, so you have another tank or another layer of treatment like these glorified septic tanks to treat it, and then you treat them all together in one plant. So these are all ideas people are working with. Are there any places that are a bit further ahead in thinking about these things, any cities or that we can look to as really innovative? So in terms of states, kind of uh, states that are moving ahead with this are uh, Orissa and AP Telangana. Um, and Tamil Nadu. There are various cities across um, each of these states that are rolling out with larger and larger versions of what I just talked about. One of the pilot projects is near Bangalore in a small town called Devanhalli. And so there was a major pilot project that was an FSTP or fecal sludge treatment plant, which has been a model for a lot of the other plants. But then there's all this management. So like with the states, there were people at the state level that were excited. And so it worked in those states for the administrators there and the politicians there. They had buy-in. Yeah, they had (laughs) buy-in. Just to conclude, I feel like we could talk about this for a long time. I have a lot more questions. What would be your dream? If you could leave a legacy, and this has really been uh, a life's work for you. You've been involved in work in India for a long time already. You lived in India for 10 years in your 20s and 30s and if you could leave a legacy in this field what would it look like what would be your dream to see happen in 30 years down the road from now wow i mean 
to start with something negative and then go into positive. Okay. Like uh, earlier this year, I was writing my research papers, and in the end, I wrote after six years of working on this specific problem uh, in urban India, I found that there are no good answers <laughs> in a sense. But what I do believe in is capacity building. It's a broad term, but in terms of continually inspiring people to work on this problem. Because it'll keep changing as India changes, as urban India changes. It's a dynamic problem because of the politics that keep changing and um, the landscapes that keep changing. So I found some great people that are really earnest at the grassroots level. They want to see an India that's clean, that's taking care of the sanitation in a sustainable manner. And those people have really inspired me. We work on workshops together um, and I've seen them teach others, other engineers, planners. And I would love to just see that, like that inspiration and that uh, authenticity for seeing you know, sustainable sanitation, um, a healthier India for everyone, um, and care for the poor along with that, just continue to multiply. So I hope my research supports those type of people that I've been working with to do an even better job. So I've been working with them to help them with their workshops, improve their reach in terms of how to teach better about the technologies and the planning. Um, and in next week, I'm helping out with a contractor's workshop. So how to train contractors for this type of work who are crucial in the whole process. And all the people that I work with, um, with these workshops are really earnest, really believe in what they do and really have a vision for a healthier and cleaner India. That is really encouraging. <laughs> I really do hope that in your work and in your work and in the work of others in this field that we can move the needle on this issue. It's not a singular issue. It's so complex and it's so, like you said, invisible, which is part of the complexities that we try to get into in this podcast. What are the invisible issues that you see? It's it's not so simple. Some of the challenges that we face here and are really complex and are really deep and I appreciate the nuance that you are able to recognize in this and the commitment that you see that this is not just a such a simple problem that you're trying to bring awareness to this so thank you for what you're doing and thanks for your commitment to this it's really encouraging and inspiring to know that there are people that care about this not just Indians but people who really do want to see India rise up and not just because we've got great malls and we've got everyone has new cars and this there, there are more <laughs> deeply seated issues which affect each and every person in this country so I'm so glad that we could do this episode <laughs>